Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 29, The Inauguration of A. Lincoln. After the fateful election of 1860, the Republicans experienced a brief period of repose before the bracing news of South Carolina's secession convention swept through the country like an errant blizzard. It was a shock, but most Republicans, Lincoln included, did not panic at the news. They had seen this all before, several times over. Some politicians would fulminate and make grandstanding demands, and then compromise in the end. Under this assumption, therefore, Lincoln kept his mouth carefully closed in this period, certainly about the possibility, and then later the evident fact of secession, choosing not to give it any legitimacy. And, in fact, he didn't view it as legitimate. Rather, when he went to his Illinois office daily and chatted with friends, political allies, and office seekers alike, he amiably discussed every topic, including theorizing about policy questions, but kept studiously mum about secession once that became a topic. Naturally, this did not stop anyone and everyone from pestering him on the same issue. That all being said, it doesn't mean that Lincoln ignored the problem, and in fact, it seems he was thinking it over deeply. To be fair about it, even before secession, Republicans had a lot on their plate. They now had the opportunity to develop policy on a very wide variety of concerns, far beyond slavery, and they had many thoughts about the direction the country should go in. These concerns occupied every available hour for Lincoln and many other Republican leaders. For starters, they envisioned a new national bank to hopefully smooth out the cycles of prosperity and crisis that had afflicted the country for decades and also they hoped to rationalize the government finances. And that, which in any other administration might have been an epic achievement, appeared but a mere appetizer for the Republicans now. They hoped also, and quite naturally, to greatly expand Western settlement. Kansas would become a political stronghold, of course, but they also planned for Nebraska, and potentially even more Western settlement in due course. And, obviously, there was not the slightest chance that they would open this land up to slavery or support the institution in the territories. The issue of westward expansion, however, was also bound up tightly with the hopes of free soilers and the undying enmity of pro-slavery Democrats, as we've seen. Given the nature of the Dred Scott decision, it may appear that Republicans had no hope of excluding slavery from the territories. Yet pro-slavery and anti-slavery factions alike understood that the institution could never grow and thrive without support and defense, either from a local community or the national government. But Republicans regarded the issue of territorial slavery in Dred Scott as mere obiter dicta, a matter not properly before the court, and upon which Chief Justice Roger Taney had no immediate power to decide. Thus, in theory at the least, they might well establish a long-term political advantage by Western settlement which at the same time would rebound to the good economic fortune and growth of the nation at large, with rich herds of beef and oceans of corn at the waiting. And in the midst of all of this, they did have some ambitions regarding the restriction of slavery. In addition to the western territories, there was also the small matter of Washington, D.C. itself. Abolishing slavery in the capital had been a goal for, well, abolitionists for decades, but each attempt failed in turn including Lincoln's own, as we've seen. But that very issue, which only yesterday seemed beyond reach, now lay on the table. And it would be a powerful, symbolic gesture, even if it didn't 
firmly strike at the heart of slaveholding. Even with all of this, however, between the election in November and South Carolina's declaration of secession on December 20th, Lincoln's primary concern and headache lay in forming his cabinet. Today, this is often a relatively mundane issue in forming an administration. For Lincoln, under some very delicate circumstances, the matter appeared far more difficult. Although he had just achieved the presidency, a goal far beyond his dreams of even a few years prior, Lincoln needed support from a broad coalition of Republicans. We've discussed some of these groups before. Simultaneously geographic, ideological, and personality-driven, they represented different views on what it meant to be a Republican. Seward of New York, for instance, despite his reputation for radicalism, actually held the most moderate ground of the new party. Salmon P. Chase, capable and respected but not well-liked, made common cause with the more radical branch of Republicans. Simon Cameron, a, with a reputation for corruption but still an influential party builder, appealed to a fair number of Northern Democrats who had come over to free soil politics. And then there was the Midwest to consider, Lincoln's stronghold, and especially some remarkable and redoubtable families such as the Blairs and the conservative-leaning Bates, Missouri. They all needed recognition. And, of course, as the significance of geography for each indicates, they all had local party organizations and interests that Lincoln needed to support in order to be supported by, in turn. For many, perhaps most leaders, attempting this level of inclusiveness might have been a mistake. While it's no surprise that politicians can, and do, bridge divides with political offices, Lincoln risked allowing his new administration to be torn asunder, as by a team of wild horses. The men he chose for his positions had no great love for each other, and darn near all of them considered themselves presidential material. No few of them looked down their noses at Lincoln, in fact, which would become a serious problem for him in the coming months. Now, we have not mentioned Hannibal Hamlin up until now, but Hamlin was the vice presidential candidate on Lincoln's ticket, and he helped the new president form the cabinet. As vice president, in an era when that office had few duties, and in a Senate that shortly would be controlled by Republicans, he was unlikely to be casting any tie-breaking votes. Still, Hamlin was an experienced politician, and he proved his value to his country and party alike in helping Lincoln put together a new leadership for a historic moment. And in fact, he took part in some of the more delicate negotiations in history, owing to the tender feelings of those men involved. Lincoln first ruled out adding cabinet representation from Illinois. Obviously, he was an Illinois man himself. And the possibility of adding Mr. Judd would have helped Lincoln personally. But cabinet positions are a very valuable piece in the political game, and never to be spent carelessly. Besides, including Judd risked unbalancing Republican Party politics in Illinois. William Seward, briefly Lincoln's presidential rival, therefore became Lincoln's first choice for cabinet official. Indeed, Lincoln planned to immediately offer Seward the prestigious and very high-profile position as Secretary of State. That effort was almost derailed en route when some of Seward's enemies in New York began a whispering campaign that Lincoln was deliberately snubbing his former opponent. Fortunately, Lincoln was able to get in touch with Seward's political manager, Thurlow Weed, and Thurlow Weed quickly persuaded Seward into accepting. Now, Seward and Weed were pretty clever individuals, and they had their own ideas about the cabinet. One of those ideas interested Lincoln enough that he attempted to change course almost immediately. 
Seward came up with the bright idea of nominating a Southerner to the cabinet as a show of unity and moderation. This possibility arrived mere days after South Carolina screamed its defiance, and Lincoln hoped it would mollify and reassure the remaining Southern states. With that in mind, Lincoln approached John Gilmer, a North Carolina Whig of Unionist sympathies. But Gilmer asked for more policy concessions on slavery than Lincoln was willing or even able to offer at this stage, and so the effort died. Gilmer, for his part, understood that joining a Republican administration represented a huge political risk for himself. Seward had a few more plans of his own, and unfortunately once he took office would cause great trouble for Lincoln in the early months of his presidency. Seward, holding little faith in Lincoln, thought he might be able to supplant and even puppet the unproven leader. This effort would fail, though not without cost. Somewhat bizarrely, Seward in time became a close ally of Lincoln, and even more than that, a genuine friend. The other serious pain point for Lincoln lay in Pennsylvania. Much as internal Republican fighting had required some awkward dancing around the politics of New York, politics in Pennsylvania required its own twists and turns. Lincoln attempted to avoid them by nominating someone outside that political sphere. But Simon Cameron had some promises, supposedly, from Lincoln's campaign at the convention. In the end, after a great political squabble that involved letter-writing campaigns and impromptu delegations, Cameron would receive not one but later another cabinet post, though very briefly in either case. Lincoln unwisely offered Simon Cameron the position of Secretary of War, which included civilian management of the army bureaucracy. This implies clearly that Lincoln didn't seriously expect military action. While Simon Cameron had his virtues, he was not regarded as an efficient administrator. Other party leaders received various important posts. The cool, if unapproachable, Simon P. Chase became Secretary of the Treasury. Despite any formal training, he turned out to be remarkably well-suited to it. Montgomery Blair, part of the extremely influential Blair family, became Postmaster General. The significance there lay in the fact that it gave Blair a direct line to Lincoln, with relatively few duties. His relatives included many powerful men and connections across the nation. The new Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, represented Connecticut, but more broadly New England. He had supported Lincoln early, and his nomination was natural. Edward Bates of Missouri became Attorney General, and Caleb Smith of Indiana, Secretary of the Interior. Both men would find their roles rather different than expected, as domestic affairs and peaceful development took strange turns in wartime. There would be changes in the future, but only one significant switch-up until 1864. On the whole, the Lincoln cabinet became remarkably stable, even in the middle of a terrible civil war. This might appear even more surprising when we consider that half the men had, as mentioned, great political ambitions, and several had contended for the presidency and hoped to do so again. Yet Lincoln knew he had a relatively weak hand, and needed powerful support to do the job. So he took on the risk of having to manage these men. We'll return to Lincoln's cabinet and the trouble it caused him in the future. For now, imagine that while all these machinations were giving Lincoln fits inside his party, the great eruption in the South was having an even worse effect on politics. When states seceded, whether it was legal or not, their congressional representatives packed up and left for home one by one. Though many had some secessionist sympathies, and some very strong ones, we should not automatically judge them too harshly. Whatever their beliefs in the abstract, the ostensible secession of their home states undercut their legitimacy as political representatives, 
but this had dangerous side effects. When these men departed Congress, they were no longer talking to anybody but their neighbors. There was no one representing the seceding states that then-President Buchanan could talk to even if he wanted to. And each seceding states made the remaining slave state senators and representatives feel more vulnerable and more isolated. The reaction in Congress mirrored that of the country at large, and both can well be imagined. As the days ticked by and the new year passed with even more secession, fears spread. Frightened of the ongoing crisis, Republicans and Northern Democrats leapt into action to formulate plans to save the Union. The cost might be high, but they hoped some form of compromise might just be possible. Several plans were drawn up, but nothing attracted much attention until Kentucky Senator John J. Crittenden assembled a plan to save the Union, continuing in fine Kentucky tradition. The Crittenden Compromise, a kind of last gasp renewal of the great Henry Clay's 1850 plan to stabilize American politics, sought to mollify Southern opinion by granting them significant concessions. The most prominent article, and the one which likely doomed the Compromise plan in the end, was the extension of the Mason-Dixon line, that is, the ostensible dividing line between the free and slave territory, all the way to California. The compromise plan, in theory, would have involved a constitutional amendment, and would ironically have been the 13th, that ensured Southerners could live the way they wished. The price, of course, was making slavery part of the foundational law of the nation. Unfortunately, in doing so, the compromise made itself intolerable anyhow. For abolitionists, the compromise was anathema. But even for the most conservative Republicans, it appeared like a very large, very bitter pill to swallow. Still, the plan had some not inconsiderable support, not the least in the border states, and they just might have been able to drag the rest of the country in simply for lack of alternatives. As one furious Republican remarked, the compromise involved making the platform just rejected by the voters four to one into part of the Constitution. But what else could they do? However, in this moment, Lincoln held the line, and he refused to countenance the compromise. Among other major issues, he argued, and quite probably correctly, that if the pro-slavery interests won this, they would make additional demands. Cuba had fired the imagination of Southern adventurers many times, and that would likely be their first goal. Cuba conveniently had many slaves already, and it could provide additional votes and muscle in Congress at the price of war with the Spanish Empire. Or it could mean further wars with Mexico, even war without end. Lincoln, as we will see, would willingly pay a terrible price for the Union, but not the price of infinite war for the furtherance of slavery. He foresaw this quite clearly. He wrote letters widely about the issue, in one stating, I answer because I fear you would misconstrue my silence. What is our present condition? We have just carried an election on principles fairly stated to the people. Now we are told in advance the government shall be broken up unless we surrender to those we have beaten before we take the offices. In this they are either attempting to play upon us or they are in dead earnest. Either way, if we surrender, it is the end of us and of the government. They will repeat the experiment upon us ad libitum. A year will not pass till we shall have to take Cuba as condition upon which they will stay in the Union. They now have the Constitution, under which we have lived for over seventy years, and acts of Congress of their own framing, with no prospect of their being changed. 
and they can never have a more shallow pretext for breaking up the government or extorting a compromise than now. There is, in my judgment, but one compromise which would really settle the slavery question, and that would be a prohibition against acquiring any more territory. Yours very truly, A. Lincoln. That probably says enough. And yet that was merely the Republican view. For slavery hardliners, the Crittenden Compromise didn't go nearly far enough, and the new Confederacy hardly noticed it at all. The Compromise kept the peace in the Upper South for a few months, but in the end provided no solution to the problem because too many men did not want a solution. In short, Crittenden's Compromise, though well-intentioned, could never succeed. That said, it is possible that by offering it, Crittenden kept the border states loyal in the long term. They already saw clear political differences between themselves and the Deep South, and the processes that would split them from the Upper South had already begun. Republicans were making overtures and attempting some kind of resolution. Secessionists were not. And as a side note, Crittenden himself remained very loyal to the Union and to Kentucky. He stayed in Congress until his death in 1863. Lincoln, unfortunately, had his own doomed endeavor, though again, not for lack of effort or good intentions. Heading towards the inauguration in Washington, he decided to take this moment to travel around the country by train, heading first east and then south towards the capital. At every stop, he would talk to the crowds and try to communicate with them. His goal, as much as anything, was to introduce himself to the nation and hopefully calm public fears over the secession crisis. But in this particular case, his personality backfired. Lincoln generally had a deft touch with the public mind. His penchant for backwards aphorisms alternatively amused and annoyed friends while it confounded political foes. However, speaking with the people deeply worried about events, well, his jokes communicated nothing. If anything, his light-hearted manners increased their fears. Lincoln did not present himself as ready for this historical moment, which, to be fair, he wasn't. No man was. But folksy sayings and casual banter weren't going to solve the crisis, and they misled people to deeply fear that Lincoln was utterly out of touch with the extremely pressing issues. The problems peaked as Lincoln's train approached Baltimore, Maryland. The north-south rail lines that serve Washington, D.C. led through Baltimore then as they do today. Yet although Maryland would never come close to real secession, it remained a slave state, and many of its wealthy and powerful held sympathies towards Southern interests. Baltimore's chief officials, in particular, had demonstrated indifference to the matter of Union entirely. Rumors swirled that when Lincoln stepped out to address the crowds, he would be promptly assassinated. Over the past few months, Lincoln's friends and family had grown more and more alarmed by random death threats, but also perceived the real prospect for violence. Now they prevailed upon him to skip the planned stop in Baltimore. Instead of delaying for a quick speech, Lincoln's train car arrived in the city in the dead of night. After that, his group traveled across the city in a carriage to the other tracks, which was just something he had to do in those days, and then they left for Washington without notice. Inside the carriage car, his two self-appointed bodyguards armed themselves with pistols and knives on the chance that a mob could descend at any moment. Panic nearly followed when an unknown figure in the night's gloom recognized Lincoln and called out, but it turned out only to be a friend and supporter from Illinois, Congressman Elihu Washburn. To this day, we genuinely don't know how much fire there was behind the smoke of rumor and threat. 
and that does bring up tough questions. If there was no real danger, then Lincoln indeed skedaddled in a humiliating fashion. Certainly, this was the view of many newspapers and opinion makers at the time. They cheerfully depicted Lincoln as sneaking through the city in his wife's frock coat. Yet we know that other dangers definitely did exist, and of course Lincoln's eventual death came in no small part because of reduced security in the immediate post-war period. Even if this particular threat was no more than sound and fury, there was no way for Lincoln and his self-appointed bodyguards to be sure about it. There was no Secret Service protection because the Secret Service didn't exist yet. Lincoln, and the very men in the train guarding him, have not yet had the chance to create it. Their resources were limited to their persons. But finally, we know there really were conspirators who wanted to capture or kill Lincoln. Within a few months, real armed pro-secession groups, somewhere between gangs and revolutionary uprisings, committed actual treason in earnest. The only question was whether or not they had time to plan an attack on Lincoln in the moment. In either case, right or wrong, Lincoln entered the Capitol quietly, checked into a hotel, and went about final preparations for his presidency. Had he any inkling of the torment ahead, he might well have gone back to Illinois and few would have blamed him. But he stayed. He believed, and not without reason, that despite the storm of protest and the ostensible secession of the Deep South, that he could turn things around, reassure the bolting states, and restore order. For all the chaos, Lincoln had reasons to be optimistic. All his life, Lincoln had been forced to work for his victories. Nothing came easily, but he soldiered through and succeeded, regardless. After his election, a mob tried to prevent Congress from certifying his victory, but they failed. Some influential men had attempted to get then-President Breckinridge to stall or block Lincoln, but Breckinridge refused. The Upper South declined to join the Lower in this moment, hence the Confederacy now appeared very shaky. Some patience, firmness, and adroit politicking could still resolve matters. And so, Abraham Lincoln, the son of an obscure Kentucky farmer, took office as President of the United States on March 4th, 1861. Roger Taney administered the oath of office, one man who had done so much to cause this secession crisis. Lincoln, for his part, carefully prepared his inaugural address for this moment, intending to send a reassuring message that would reaffirm the Republican Party in the North without frightening Southerners, and yet still avoid giving away too much ground before any negotiations had taken place. With some not inconsiderable assistance from Seward, Lincoln more or less managed to craft a good message. Some of the lines are even remembered today, though many don't remember their origin. Lincoln closed his address with an appeal to brotherhood that, though legendary, would not be heeded. I am loath to close. We are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching forth from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union, when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. It was a call to peace in circumstances that few men have ever had the opportunity to share, but few men would heed it. 
That same day, when Lincoln entered the Oval Office, he discovered that a new phase of the conflict was just about to explode in his face, where he was now commander-in-chief as well as president. He received a desperate call for aid from one of the last bastions of federal power in the South. Lincoln might never have heard of Fort Sumter before that day, that hour, but he would undoubtedly never forget thereafter. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.